Today's reading is from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you with a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the very beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Your time writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother and lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to look together now at the passage that Emma read for us before. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn to the first letter of John, Uh, We're going to pick up at chapter 2, verse 3. But before we do that, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we pray that you would give us now a heart to know you. That you are the God of grace and truth who has come to us in Jesus Christ. Make us your people. Be our God. Cause us to return to you with our whole heart. We ask it in and through him who has made you known. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So will date some of you, but I wonder if you remember Donald Rumsfeld. He was the United States Secretary of Defense uh, for George Bush in his presidency. And he's best remembered for a news conference uh, nearly 20 years ago when he said this. There are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know. And there are also unknown unknowns. These are the ones we don't know that we don't know. At the time, it generated mostly ridicule in the media, although later comment was kinder. He was actually just articulating uh, the position of the U.S. in terms of its foreign intelligence that had been put in those terms for decades. Rumsfeld himself alluded to it later in the title of his memoirs. I guess he knew he couldn't escape the moment, so he may as well embrace it. And actually, it is helpful, and not just in analyzing political situations, we can apply it to people's knowledge or otherwise of God. See, some people know that they know God. And John is writing his letter so that that group will include us, that we will have a confident faith. He's writing to people who already believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and so they have life in his name. But he wants us to believe in Jesus. He wants us, rather, who believe in Jesus, to have absolute assurance so that we know that we know. That's why John begins the first verse of the passage we're looking at. We know that we have come to know him. He's talking about 
our Christian experience of God as being a known known. We know that we have come to know him. I'm thinking just for a little longer about Donald Rumsfeld's categories. Many of our neighbors, and perhaps some of you here this morning or joining us on our YouTube channel, you know that you don't know. And yet you're here because, well, perhaps you couldn't resist the encouragement of your friend or family member who dragged you to church uh, this morning. Perhaps there's something about the Christian faith that's intrigued you or unsettled you, and you want to know if it's true. You know at the moment that you don't know, but you're interested, you're exploring, you're wondering if this Christianity could really be true. You don't yet know God personally. You haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, and you know that that's true. Well, I'm so glad you're here. This isn't perhaps the sermon I would have invited you to, but stick around. God's word is always powerful. Uh, And perhaps you could ask your Christian friend to read through John's gospel with you. You see, John wrote his gospel, the fourth of the gospels, he tells us, for these reasons. I write, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why we recently spent a couple of years journeying with John and his gospel, that we might encourage people to come to put their faith in Jesus. Then he writes his letter, this one we're studying now, to people who've come to believe in Jesus. And he says this, 1 John 5.13, he writes to you who believe, that is, believe already in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, there's that word again, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us who believe to know and to know that we know God. And of course, there are a multitude in Donald Rumsfeld's third category, people who don't know God, but who at a conscious level at least, don't even know that they don't know God. Thoughts of God and heaven and eternity never seriously enter their minds at all, or at least not until it's too late, or only in order to ridicule them. Friends, you and I are called to go into the world and by word and deed to unsettle those who are ignorant atheists, who have no knowledge of their creator and redeemer. And at the very least, uh, we go into the world to keep the rumor of God alive in this secular age. And as we long for the opportunity to both demonstrate and articulate the life-changing reality of knowing God personally in Jesus Christ. And you see, John writes because he wants us to be confident Christians, to know that we know, because then we'll be ready to walk with the friend who doesn't yet know whether they believe or not or what this Christian faith is all about. Then we'll have the confidence to stand firm in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ when we're the only student in our classroom who is doing so, the only person in our workplace who's actually putting their head above the parapet and is known as a Christ follower. We need a confident faith to do that, and that is what John wants us to have. So what about this knowledge of God? Can we know God? And if we can, then can we know that we know him? Can we have real confidence that faith is not blind, but certain? 
And as we answer that question, as we walk with John, as he gives us the first of, well, not the first, in fact, the the latest, uh, the whole letter is a series of reasons uh, to encourage our confidence in Christ. But it may be helpful to know uh, a little bit more at this stage in our exploring of John's letter about his opponents, about those who had caused upset and division and disorientation within the church family that caused him to write this letter In the first place, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you may remember that we've already discovered that John has written this letter to a church that has been through a painful split. And it's a split that's been caused by new teachers coming with a new message, still talking about God and light and Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the apostles. It's not the Jesus of John who heard and saw and touched the real Jesus. It's an invented Jesus. It's a manufactured Jesus. It's a Jesus who meshes in much more seamlessly with the culture and thinking of the world into which Jesus came. And uh, these new teachers had come and drawn many away with their new message. And those who remained true to the authentic message and person of Jesus, as I say, were discouraged and disorientated. So who are these new teachers? And how might we find their work today? Well, in the original language of the New Testament, the word for knowledge is gnosis, but with a silent G, gnosis. And we take that word directly into English. We put an A on the front of it, and we have the word agnostic. It comes from the Greek. We put an A on the front, agnostic. And it's a familiar word. People who want to distance themselves from Christianity or our church often describe themselves to me as an agnostic. Oh, no, I'm not a church guy. I'm a bit of an agnostic. And generally what they're meaning by that is I'm not a believer. I'm not sure, perhaps, about what Christian faith is all about. The word literally means, though, no knowledge. When someone says they're an agnostic, they're saying, I don't know. Uh, Technically, uh, agnosticism is even stronger than that. A true agnostic is someone who says we cannot know God. Knowledge of God is an impossibility. But most people don't use the word that way. Uh, When people say that to us, it's the equivalent of saying, and I hate this phrase, I'm not religious. I don't know about all that church and Christianity stuff. It's usually uh, uh, the word articulated as people are backing away uh, metaphorically or physically from us uh, as the subject of Christian faith has come up. But behind John's first letter stand a group of people that claimed the opposite. They claimed to have gnosis, to have knowledge. And according to them, God is there. Well, we would agree with that. But according to them, they have gained enlightenment about him, not by coming to John and the other apostles who heard and saw and touched and listening to their testimony of the authentic Jesus, And certainly they wanted nothing to do with the Old Testament scriptures. No, these were people who said, uh, God is real and I don't need any books and I don't need any apostles. I don't need anyone else. I just need my own inner sense of enlightenment. And although they've long disappeared from history, in a sense they've never gone away and indeed were never more powerfully at work than in this present generation. You see, they taught that there is a spiritual reality in us that has no connection with the outward life of reality in a flesh and blood world. And in fact, you can escape the restrictions and restraints of this humdrum 
uh, earthly existence by knowledge. And again, this knowledge doesn't come from apostles. It doesn't come uh, from the Christ who became flesh, the God who took flesh amongst us. That idea was anathema to them. This world was lowly. Bodies uh, were there to serve the spirit. So there Jesus uh, was just the appearance of God in the flesh. And John says, the Bible says, no, Jesus is the creator come amongst us in human flesh. That's why that is the acid test of really knowing the truth uh, within one John. These Gnostics would say, no, we don't need any of that stuff outside. I just know in my heart. And no one can test it. No one can criticize it. And if they do, then it just shows they don't have the knowledge. And the most important thing they would say of all is just to be truly and authentically you. And if the real you, the outward you, the you that everyone else sees, doesn't match up with the you of your body or the you of your circumstances in life, then it was your body or your outward life that was at fault. So, for example, the differences between male and female or the idea that there is such a thing as a natural order of human sexual relations. If your inward knowledge contradicted those things, then your salvation was found in becoming the real you and causing your outward life to come in conformity with your inner convictions. Now, it's not quite the same as our current culture, but it's not very far away from it either, is it? rebelling against the creator and the world and the bodies he has created and the moral law that he has given us. This is as old as Eden, and it's as contemporary as you and me. So when we hear people, and we do hear them saying this insistently all the time, I have the right to identify as whoever I want to be, to live however I want to live. I have to be free to be authentically me, the me of my inner self Don't restrict me with these laws from nature or old rules from old books, especially when that comes with a religious veneer. We're just hearing a 21st century echo of a first century heresy. And we can get a sense of what these new teachers were saying in 1 John. Every time the apostle says, if we claim, or the man who says, And many of those cluster around the passage we were in last week and the one we're in today. So just listen again with uh, now a little more understanding of who it is that John has in mind as he says these words. Chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. His word has no place in our lives. Or in our passage, chapter 2, verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And chapter 2, verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. It's not hard to read back the message of the new teachers. They were saying, we know God. We have fellowship with him. We walk in the light. We love God. And you know what? It doesn't really matter about sin. 
Just love God and follow your inner voice and live as you please. Don't burden yourself with all those restrictions from what others call the word of God and seem to be obsessed about. It's so old-fashioned. It's so restrictive. Just be free to be you. Look within for the light and follow the instincts that you find there. And if that means you must follow your own unique journey, so be it. It's more important, they would say, to love yourself, to find your own inner happiness, liberated from both so-called nature and these old laws apparently from God. After all, if God is love, doesn't that mean he wants you to be happy? And if that means you have to call out those who insist on this old-fashioned, repressive way of thinking of a God who actually reveals truths about himself in the natural world, and even more profoundly and deeply so in a revealed scripture, well, then so be it. They're just on the wrong side of history because we're the enlightened ones and we walk in the light of today. As I say, it doesn't feel to me very much like an ancient heresy. And we can understand, can't we, though, why John's readers were disoriented and discouraged. Here were people talking about God and light and love and saying things that all our rebellious hearts long to hear. You can have it all and change nothing. Who doesn't want to hear that? And yet John was insisting, no, there is a knowledge of God, and it doesn't come from within. It comes from the God who has revealed himself in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. I heard, I saw, I touched him. He's the one you need to engage with as I proclaim him to you, says John. And indeed, as we do so, uh, we will discover a genuine freedom and a sweet joy that the pursuit of inner light in the end will always be a fruitless search that ends only in more darkness. So how do we really know that we know the God who is actually there? Our testimony is simple. I know God because I believe in Jesus. Because the God who made me has come and entered this world, this messed up, rebellious world, as a human being, and he's paid the price for my sin. That's what John has just been saying, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And now he lives to speak to the Father in my defense. You see, if you're a Gnostic, you don't need one to speak to the Father in your defense because you've done nothing wrong. All you've got to do is follow the inner light. The inner light, though, that never really satisfies and only ends in the darkness. It's only when the light has shown up these hearts to be truly dark in the light of both God's revelation in the natural world and even more so in the scriptures that Christian faith makes sense because we flee to Jesus and lay hold of him as the one who sets us free from sin and the wrath of God that comes because of it. And now he lives. He lives. He was a flesh and blood and he died and he rose And there is a man in heaven who speaks to the Father in our defense. This is our faith. But how do we actually know that? How do we demonstrate that confidently to a skeptical world and to our own doubting hearts? And John here gives us two pieces of evidence to look for. See, our knowledge of God is is rooted in and based upon, grounded upon what he has revealed of himself in Christ, the word of life, and in the word of life written that bears witness to that. But when it actually takes root in our lives, well then, John says, now we turn from the roots to the fruit. Now we can see the effect of the word of life at work 
in people who've turned to follow Jesus. And it's as we do that, he says, that you can know that you know. Let's look at the end of verse 3 of our reading. We know that we know him if we obey him, just as Jesus did. And then he'll come on uh, to give a second piece of evidence. We know that we know him if we love each other, just as Jesus did. Or to put it another way, our claim to know God is the real thing. If there are the fruits, the sign, the evidence that we're beginning to obey our Heavenly Father and that we're loving our sisters and brothers in the church. And in those ways, we will demonstrate that we really do know him because that knowledge has begun to transform us and renew us as we follow Christ and it makes a difference that is visible to ourselves and others. It will stand against the Gnostics of our own day who say that personal authenticity is more important than obedience to the word of God or that loving yourself is more important than sacrificing yourself in order to love others. So let's look in a little more detail. We know if we obey, verses 3 to 6, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So without at least the first steps of sincere obedience to Jesus Christ, there is no point in talking about faith in Jesus Christ. The man who says, I know him and does not do what he commands, he's a liar. That sounds a high standard, an impossible standard, but think about it in terms of relationship. John has already taught us that to know God is just that, a a knowledge of a person. We come into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the testimony of the apostles as we're united together in Christ. So relational terms are the right ones. Think about marriage. We've had some bands of marriage this morning. We've celebrated some wonderful weddings, even under COVID in recent weeks. Well, a man may say on his wedding day that he loves his radiant bride and may feel it with all his heart. But real love, according to the scriptures, is not simply declared, but demonstrated. Anybody can stand up and say some words on a wedding day and be grand with the promises. It takes something rather different to live with those promises the next year and the next decade and to the end of life. Or so it is with faith. It is good to say, I know God and I trust in Jesus. But if you do, then simply saying the words is not enough. They must now follow uh, those words in practice. And this is not an encouragement to test anyone else's heart or life, but your own. And neither is it an impossible call to perfect living. Remember, the first thing that God commands, who walks in the light, if we would walk in the light with him, is that we confess our sins. We confess our failures to obey. We did all of that last week. Uh, we looked at those three excuses. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what does it mean to be an obedient Christian? First of all, it means to be a confessing Christian. A humble Christian, a Christian who says, Lord, I know you command me to love you and love my neighbor, but I failed and I keep failing and I'll keep on failing until that day when you make me perfect. Well, if last week we we looked at that reality of the enduring nature of the fallen man within our hearts, this week we look at the other side of it. Yes, of course, we must keep on confessing, but we must equally keep on striving We confess our failure with the Lord's help. We stand up and say, Lord, here I am. Take me and use me 
to serve you. It's a similar thing in marriage, isn't it? If marriage depended on perfect love, none of us would survive the wedding day. But it doesn't. It cannot in a fallen world. But it does depend on sincere love. We keep on getting it wrong, or at least I know I do in my marriage. Quite glad Sarah's teaching Sunday school this morning, not here to look at me. Uh, But we keep on trying. We keep on saying, sorry, I did that. And we pick ourselves up and we renew our love and faithfulness to our spouse. The proof of marital love is not perfection, but perseverance. And so it is with Christian obedience. Of course we'll keep failing to love God perfectly. We're not Jesus. Of course we'll keep on stumbling and needing his daily uh, purification and renewal. But equally, we commit ourselves, because he's our Lord, to following him, to reading the scriptures and doing what they say. Saying, Lord, this is so hard, and I I find it difficult in myself and in this culture, and please will you help me to obey what you teach me? That's the character, John says, of a true disciple. We know we've come to know him if we obey his commands. Verse 3, verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, God's love, or better, love for God is truly made complete in him. You see, God does speak, uh, and not uh, merely through conscience, which itself is fallen, uh, or through circumstance, not denying there's a place for the inward light or prompt, but fundamentally and without error and always relevantly, he speaks in his word. See, John says we come to know him if we obey his commands, not the instincts within, but the written commands that by the Holy Spirit, God now writes on our hearts that we might know what obedience to him looks like. And indeed, this is the only way uh, to discover that love of God being made perfect in us. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And Jesus, of course, walked with perfect obedience. But it was a struggle. Think of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. Tears, even with blood coming down from his face. This is not an easy thing because our nature will fight it and our culture will join in with it. The world, the flesh and the devil are always our enemies. We need forgiving often, but we must also commit ourselves to this, that he will be our Lord because he is our saviour. Let it be our prayer as well, not my will but yours be done. And the second piece of evidence that John gives us in these verses from verse 7, we know that we know him if we love our sisters and brothers in Christ. Dear friends, literally beloved, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So what is it, John? Is it a a new command or is it an old one? And which command is it? Well, verse 9, the subject explicitly is that love that believers are to have for one another. So that surely is what John means. Remember Jesus said famously, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So uh, this command is new in the sense that it's seen uniquely when God himself comes into the world and practices it. 
But John's writing to people who've been Christians for a little while. I've been a Christian for 32 years, and this new command is now old. Uh, I've had it before my eyes, just as you have. Uh, All of your days, certainly all of the days of your Christian faith. Have I achieved it perfectly? Far from it. I'm in the foothills of this, where there is still the mountain of what this looks like in practice to climb. And yet John writes, remember, not to condemn us, but to encourage us. When I look back at our church family over this last year, of course we've got some things wrong. If we'd known this pandemic was going to last as long as it did, I think we would have organized some things differently. But again and again, I've been humbled and led to rejoicing by the way that I've seen love between sisters and brothers in our congregation. I've seen burdens born. I've seen that love overflowing into the community. Almost all of this love is secret. Others don't see it. We don't do it publicly, but the the phone calls, the uh, practical care, the bearing with one another uh, as we've all uh, struggled to come to terms with what has happened to us, the kindnesses that have been shown in so many myriad uh, of ways. We've kept on meeting, even when it's been a struggle uh, to do so. And we're not perfect in love any more than we're perfect in obedience. But I would say confidently to someone who's a skeptic about Christian faith, come and meet the people who belong to St. John's Hartford. And you won't find a perfect group of people, and they're certainly led by an imperfect vicar. But you will see some real signs of people wrestling with the word of God and seeking to obey what God commands, even when that's really tough. And you'll see people who care for each other and who want to help one another in the struggles of everyday life, not just in the religious observances of it. Do we do that perfectly? Of course we don't. We know our own failures. We know that there have been times when we've let one another down, just as there are times when we've borne one another up. And that's why we always cycle back to the cross. We always come back and say, Lord, have mercy. Because I haven't obeyed you as I should. I haven't loved my fellow Christians as I should. But are there the first signs of it? We've been trying to grow some new grass uh, at the vicarage. And I kept going out every day. I'd planted the seed. I'd even bought some special fertilizer from B&Q. And I watched and I watched and there were no sign. I said to Sarah, it's all off. Uh, I've done the wrong thing. I, I, I can't plant anything. It's just not there. It feels like that sometimes in church, doesn't it? Frustrating. There seems to be too little life. And then the other day, the first little green shoots popped out. And now there's a great forest. I need to get a child to mow the lawn again um, because of the grass that's grown. It's slow coming, but you can't miss it. If the Spirit of God is at work, then these outward evidences of Jesus, the author of life at work amongst us, will be there. So friends, can we know God? Yes, trust in Jesus. Can we know that we know God? Yes, because his word is true and because it works. It works obedience in the hearts of wicked sinners and it works love in a community of selfish people. Come and see what God is doing and know that he is real. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I preach a sermon like this, and I know how far you have to go in my life, how much there is that you would claim as your own and lead me in paths of obedience, how much love there is you would have me show. And Lord Jesus, I speak not just for myself, but for all those who know you here, 
And I pray that you would have all of us, that your love would win us over, that we might know that we know you because your word is true and because you are at work in us. We ask this, Lord, that many may come to know the truth of Jesus in this place, may turn to follow him today, even for the first time, and that you would renew and unite us in the cross and empty tomb. In your name we pray. Amen.